1: Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections, welcome to the Rhino Cast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands, and balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace.
2: Hey, hey, Rich. Hey, hey, Dennis. Today on the RhinoCast, we'll be talking about the new Rhino limited edition box set that takes an iconic 1967 album to a whole new level. We are, of course, talking about the recently released
3: More of the Monkeys Super Deluxe Edition.
2: Our special guest, Mickey Dolenz, is going to tell us the story the way he remembers it. And fact, is, it's a bit more friendly than the version that Mike Nesmith might have told. We've also got Andrew Sandoval, who's written books about the monkeys and curated
3: this great re-release. As you're about to hear, he might know more history about the monkeys
2: and more of the monkeys than even Mickey does. Get ready for a tale that involves couture by J.C. Penney, and the band not learning the album was released until they saw a promotion for
3: it. You'll hear about the eventual ousting of the legendary Don Kirshner from The Monkees' Fold, and why, despite all of that, More of the Monkees was one of the biggest albums of 1967.
2: This box set contains three CDs, including the original remastered album, two full discs of unreleased tracks, and a recently discovered 1967 Phoenix concert. From a believer on 17...
0: Oh, one more star, please. Rolling on 18, I'm a believer. One, can Can't hear oh, it unless oh, you turn it oh. on high-end stereo. I thought love was only true in fairy tales And for someone else, but not for me Our love was out to get me That's the way it seemed Disappointment, haunted, all my dreams And I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a trace Of doubt in my mind I'm in love I'm a believer I couldn't leave her if I tried
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome. Would you both introduce yourselves, please? Hi, I'm
4: Mickey Dolenz. I'm from the Los Angeles area, San Fernando Valley. I was born in a place called Tarzana. Ah. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs had a big ranch there and paid for by his books on Tarzan. So they named the, the area Tarzana. I was born on a chicken ranch and grew up in the, in the valley, in different areas of the San Fernando Valley.
5: I'm Andrew Sandoval. I'm a native of Los Angeles, born in Santa Monica, and been producing records for Rhino since 1990 as a reissue producer, mostly on the Monkees catalog, and then more recently, in the last decade, been producing the Monkees concert tours. I put this more of the Monkees set together.
2: Do you remember, Mickey, the day, the time, and the moment you got the call after you did the audition? Not the call. I remember
4: it happening. I don't recall the the call, it would have just have been my agent saying, oh, you got the pilot. Uh, it frankly did not mean that much, funnily enough. I'd already had a series as a kid, and I'd been up for three or four pilots that year, music pilots, as a matter of fact. I remember quite a bit about the audition process because it was so unusual for a television show. It went on, it was extensive. You had to be able to sing and you had to be able to play an instrument, which was unusual, obviously, for a television pilot. And it was heavily weighted towards spontaneity and improvisation, which I really wasn't that good at. At the time, I was used to a script and having scripted lines and, and stuff. But I do remember that, I thought, this is really weird. This is good. This is different. The Monkeys was a television show about a group that wanted to be the Beatles. That's what the show is about. And we never made it. On the television show, we were never successful. It was the struggle for success that endeared it to generations, millions of people. On The Monkeys television show, we never got a job we were never successful it was one of the key elements of the bible they call it in television that i think the producers and the writers made very very smart decision about that that this was going to be about a band that wants to be famous and is trying to be the beatles we had a poster of the beatles in set and we'd throw darts at it, but we never were successful, which does beg the question of how we could afford a Malibu beach house and never got any work.
5: Don Kirshner saw this as an opportunity not just for a TV show and not just to exploit the songs that he published, but that this was going to be his Beatles. Like
4: Mike Nesmith always says, it's Pinocchio became a real little boy. The way I look at it, there were two groups. There was the television show group living in the little fictitious beach house. Me as the wacky drummer, Davey as the heartthrob, Mike as the Will Rogers character, Peter as the Hunts Hall, Harpo Marx character. And this was all part of their plan. I remember this, that they had this in mind in the casting of the show. But again, they clearly had the intention for us to go out and sing and play, or they would not have made it a prerequisite that you had to be able to sing and play to get th- even through the auditions. I'll give you a good example. When they built the Monkey Mobile, Dean Jeffries designed and built the Monkey Mobile, very early days after they sold the pilot. In the very early days of filming the television series, they said, The Monkey Mobile is done, it's coming. And so we all took a break, you know, at lunch, and we went out and, on Sunset and Gower, and we hear
0: <laughs>
4: this massive loud noise coming down the street with the headers open, and it was the monkey mobile. And it was towing behind it a little, kind of it reminded me of a huge doghouse kind of thing. It, it was like this little shed on a trailer behind the car. And they come up the street. And we're like, oh, my God, the Monkey Mobile. Oh, it's so cool. And we'd seen it in development, and we'd looked at it and stuff, but it was so cool. And then one of us must have said, well, what's that on the back? And the producers, or the guy that built the cardine, he pulled a lever, and he turned a crank, or did something. And the sides of this shed fall down on the ground, and the roof comes off and expands. And it turns into a platform. And they said, this is gonna be the stage where you play on in supermarket parking lots to promote the show. But where did Don Kirshner come into the picture? He he was the head of Screen Gems Publishing Music. Now, Screen Gems, the overall parent company, was Screen Gems Television, a subsidiary of Columbia Pictures. And just not so coincidentally, probably, Screen Gems Publishing was the Brill Building. It was the organization that, through Donnie Kirshner and others before him, had created this magnificent monster of a publishing company.
5: I mean, they had bought this publishing company from Don Kirshner because it was originally called Al Don Music. And they had purchased it a couple of years before the Monkees. And he had built up the stable with Goffin and King yep. and Man and Whale and, right. and Jeff Berry and so on. And so he had this asset that he would sold Columbia Pictures, and he was chomping at the bit to find the vehicle with which to use his riders to take it to the next level. Don Kirshner had full control over doing whatever he wanted, putting out whatever he wanted on a record. Without the consent of the producers and creators of the show or the members of the band. There's a thing in these liner notes I wrote. Bert Schneider wrote to Lester Sill, who worked for Don Kirshner, and said, if this was a typical situation, no recording group would allow someone to go in and cut tracks without some knowledge of what they are. He's writing this to this guy. And he said, I would appreciate you discussing this with the powers that be and letting me know what is going to be done. and the powers that be are actually him and his partner, Bob Rafelson, but they have no control over what Don Kirshner is doing. Yeah. He's going to release whatever records he wants. He's going to put whatever he wants on the cover. He's going to show it to them as a courtesy, but he's not going to involve the monkeys or anybody else. He's yeah. on his own trip. He's doing his own thing, and he's going to be wildly successful at doing it.
2: So let's get into more of the monkeys. There were 30 songs. Yeah. And of those 30 songs, how many songs landed up on the actual record?
5: 12 songs on the final album, picked by Don Kirshner. The record was timed to come out specifically to go with a fashion thing where you could buy the clothes that were on the cover of the record. They were advertised. Of which
4: we got nothing.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that was J.C. Penney's. In this case, it wasn't Columbia Pictures per se. It was more Don Kirshner- And the marketing person at Columbia named Honest Ed Justin, who was a branding guy. And so there's a letter from Pennies to him that basically says, we've taken these photos of the monkeys wearing these clothes, and we're going to send you a mock-up. What if this was the cover of the record? And we just put it out, and then we would carry the record in our stores, and we would buy in a lot more copies of the records if they were wearing our clothes on the cover, especially if you got us the record by December so we could have it out in January. So
4: the monkeys came along and made it okay to have long hair and bell-bottoms in the living room. And when J.C. Penney's saw that happening, they jumped on the bandwagon and said, it's okay to have kids in bell-bottoms and Paisley. It does not mean they're committing crimes against nature because the only time before the monkeys, you saw kids of our age on television, they were being arrested.
5: Their credibility with all the other bands of the time, the Birds and the Buffalo Springfield, stuff like that, them wearing this polyester stuff on the cover of their record, at least some of the band wanted to be taken seriously as musicians and songwriters. And here they are. They don't look at their best or they don't feel that they're being taken seriously by the people who sold them this bill of goods. You're going to be famous. You're going to get to do your own songs. You're going to get to sing on a hit record. The producers delivered a lot of those promises, but they didn't deliver the dream in the way that certainly Peter and Michael envisioned it. And
4: that's important distinction, because David and I did not, from my recollection, have the same sort of overarching idea about this. I was used to wearing wardrobe. When they said, okay, you're going to go for your wardrobe fitting, I showed up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they measured me, and they fitted me. And I showed up on the set, and they said, here's your wardrobe for scene one, I put it on. I don't even know what it was. I couldn't have cared less. After this record, Don
2: Kirshner was moved out of the picture.
5: He sort of self-sabotaged himself because he exerted his total control over the situation by releasing a record that was not sanctioned by A, the Monkees, and B, the creators of the show. So he felt that he was unstoppable because of the success he had had, but he found out that he was stoppable because the Monkees had created a song of their own a girl i knew somewhere they wanted just on the b side of the record didn't seem like a lot to ask and he said absolutely not this goes against my authority i'm going to put out this record without anybody's permission and he did and he found that bert schneider's father was in enough control to get rid of him
4: that was a little bit me a little bit you I say, girl. Everybody else would have a different point of view, probably. But from my point of view, I have no problem with any of those hit songs, including Little Bit Me, Little Bit You. I sing it in my show every night. Clarksville, Believer, all those huge first hits, I have never had a problem with. Mike, mainly, just wanted to be included in some of the decision-making processes. Like, just let us approve the album cover or the liner notes. We had nothing, the list of the songs, which ones were picked, uh the order, you know, absolutely nothing. And so. I can understand how Mike especially would have been very very uh frustrated with that. So many of these songs are incredible and were released later on. On uh, later on on other albums. They were recording 24/7 essentially because they wanted two new songs in every episode if they could. And these albums were selling so hot that they wanted to release the next album before this one was even finished printing. So, well, I I knew what was on the original album, of course, um, but these all were not necessarily recorded uh, just to be on this album. This was a, a library of stuff that they were planning to release over years
5: Right. It's basically it's stuff you recorded between late June of 66 and November of 66.
4: So Donny Kirshner would have known, obviously, that you're only going to do 12 on an album. So this was recording for the future, too.
5: Well, there's a really interesting track on here. That's the last track on disc two, which is you guys in the studio, all four of you in the studio together doing a vocal session for Mary Mary, which you're the lead vocalist of. But Michael's producing it because it's his song. And Don Kirshner is there. And it was done for the benefit of Look Magazine because they were doing a feature on you guys. And it was showing how the monkeys work on their music together. Mm-hmm. And so they left the tapes running. And so basically you guys are just riffing and cracking each other up and telling stories. And you know Michael says, oh, it's Whispering Mickey Dolenz. And then Davy says, yeah, but with a million-seller, because you had a million-selling record at that point, and there's a little bit of Peter on there and talking about how to do the vocal parts. It's really interesting to hear you guys, but it was always said by Boyce & Hart, we can't have the four Monkeys in together in the studio because it's not productive. It just—
4: No, it wasn't. It was crazy.
5: Instead, instead of uh, instead of singing In union son with yourself again, Mickey, sing up high with Peter and everybody. Because I think we got enough of the of the lead voice on it.
3: Say hey, that sounds like a good idea,
5: Soon
0: you know these words are all different. Sitting there right notes, oh God, Davy is sitting up there singing, and uh, he's moving his left foot, he's moving his right foot. This can make a great story. Oh boy, people love this. Davy is wearing brown pants and blue shirt with buttons up front. It looks very sexy. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, Mickey doesn't have any nose and a big chin. And Mike doesn't have any chin and a big nose. And Peter's just generally screwed. But Davey's cute and sexy. Keep writing that in. Don't forget that. Got to keep up the image, right? The old image. Headlines. Look. Davey is cute and sexy. (laughs)
5: Here we go. The last track on this box set is you singing lead on I Got a Woman live in Arizona from yeah. January of '67. I Got a Woman! When you guys did your solo spots, was that in your club We all act? picked our own. Yeah. Traditionally, we always
4: did that, and we always have to this day. It was basically stuff from your roots. Right. Peter did Cripple Creek on the banjo from his folk days in New York. Mike tells the story all the time how Bo Diddley had inspired him to get into music. He told me the story, like, not long ago, some little club in the Dallas.
5: He saw Jerome, who was Bo Diddley's uh, maraca player, and he said, that's the job I want, just playing maracas. You'd always see him playing maracas.
4: Yeah. Uh, David, of course, going to build a mountain, Tony Newley from his Broadway life. And I was a huge James Brown fan and Ray Charles fan and pre-Monkey life. My rock and roll had gone towards Little Richard, Vats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, as I mentioned. And so I did, I Got a Woman.
5: You get the big picture of more of the monkeys in this box set because you get the liner notes that sort of set the stage and tell you through interviews with Don Kirshner and Jeff Berry and quotes from Bob Rafelson and the Four Monkeys, some of which are unique to these liner notes. You get to hear that sort of story told, but you also get the original record which has been remastered for this set. And this is the first time for the mono record, which the tape has been lost for many years, that we recovered some of the original elements for the mono album. This is one of the biggest selling records of the 1960s, yet every single tape for the mono version has seemingly gone missing. We also remastered the stereo version. And then for the television show, they did a lot of unique mixes for the TV show because a lot of the versions that were played on the show were works in progress. They weren't the finished things. So we recovered a lot of those when we were restoring the television show for the uh, Blu-ray box set last year. So there's a lot of new things. And then I went through every extent session tape that was from 1966, from the period when they worked on this, and I selected alternate backing tracks for most of the songs on the album. There's a song called Whatever's Right which the Monkees actually finished for their Good Times album in a totally different version. So this is the first time we'll ever hear the original version that was cut by Boyce and Hart in 66.
4: Whatever's Right, take one.
5: And then I remixed a lot of songs by re-syncing elements of the original session tape with the overdub tape. So using new technology to sync the two things up so we could get really nice multi-track stereo for the first time on a lot of things. And the single, there's a vinyl 45 in this, has the first ever re-synced remix of I'm a Believer. And then the vocals only of I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, just the vocal tracks. So you can hear what a great vocalist Mickey Dolenz is. Ah,
0: your stepping stone I'm not your stepping stone You're trying to make your mark in society You're using all the tricks that you used on me You're reading all them high fashion magazines The clothes you're wearing girl are causing public scenes I said I
5: we also recovered the first ever known live recording of the Monkees which is from January 67 recorded in Arizona for their television show their closing episode of their first season called the Monkees on tour. They recorded this entire concert but they didn't record most of the vocals because they were assuming that they were going to loop in the vocals like they would on a TV show. But they did record quite a few of Michael's vocals and they recorded the solo spots, the vocals for those. So Again, using the multi track and extracting as much as I could out of it, we have released every single song that had at least an audible vocal. And they are very unusual for the time, the Monkees, because they always change their set list. And they do songs on this that they never did on any other show.
2: But you have had the opportunity to really know the story from everybody. You have talked to Don Kirshner. You have written about him. Is he really a Morris Levy? Is he a Svengali? Is he an evil man? Or was he just a good businessman in the days of the Brill Building, in the days of Alan Freed, in the days of when radio was radio and a hit was all?
5: I think Don Kirshner is misunderstood. I think that he is a good businessman, and he certainly had a good ear for music. I wouldn't have selected these 12 songs for this album. I don't agree with him. I think some of the other songs that you hear on this box set are much better, like Words, or I'll Be Back Upon My Feet, or Valerie. But that being said, I think he treated the monkeys fairly in the sense that he didn't give them control over the recordings, but he paid them fairly. And he treated them like they were recording artists. But recording artists in the old school fashion that they recorded what a producer or a director told them to record, and that's all they did.
0: Everyone in town knew Mr. Webster. He worked at the bank for 40 years. And each week, Mr. Frisbee made his checkout. For sixty-eight dollars clear And through the years he thwarted twenty-seven robberies We had a speech prepared And a little box that held a watch with this inscription To Mr. Webster with regard Then came the telegram from Mr. Webster Said sorry, stop, cannot attend I've flown away and taken all your money Wish you were here to help me spend Mr.
1: Frisbee lock the door. Yee-hoo! Howdy buckaroos, circle the wagons and sound the alarm. It's time for the Rhino Roundup.
6: Hi there, it's Lauren G. And John Hughes from Rhino, and here is your Rhino Roundup. Right now in stores, we've got Ramon's Rocket to Russia 40th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. This is a three CD one vinyl LP version of the band's third album featuring two mixes of the original plus rarities and unreleased studio and live recordings the collection includes a number of unreleased studio recordings plus unissued recording of the band's 1977 concert in glasgow scotland this was a pretty amazing epic concert recorded right before the classic live album it's Alive* and mixed for the 40th anniversary edition by Ed Stasium. They played songs from all three studio albums, Blitzkrieg Bop, Judy is a Punk Rocker, Gimme Gimme Shock Treatment, and California Sun.
1: Yeah, and not only that, Rocket to Rush is just a great Ramones record, too. Indeed. You? It's a fantastic And if one.
6: Deluxe is too big for you, we've got the expanded and the remastered versions Single and digital uh, downloads available on all streaming services.
1: Awesome! If you are a New Wave fan or an '80s guy in excess, Kick 30th Anniversary Edition is out now. This is amazing. It is in Dolby Atmos, if you are a true audiophile, and if you're a vinyl enthusiast, there's also a half-speed remaster of the album cut over two heavyweight 180-gram LPs at 45 RPM. I mean, it doesn't get any more vinyl enthusiasts than that, I don't think. The original album's been remastered, you've got demos, remixes, and more. Tons of 12 inch mixes that were done back in the day for New Sensation, Devil Inside, and Need You Tonight, of course. And then that Blu ray with the whole album in Dolby Atmos, plus all the promo videos that were done for this record. You forget how many videos they had done for Kick. I mean, there was Guns in the Sky, New Sensation, Devil Inside, Need You Tonight. So (laughs) many videos. You'll get your in excess fill with the Kick 30th Anniversary Edition out now. And that's the Rhino Roundup.
2: Thanks for listening to
1: the Rhino Cast. If
3: you'd like to learn more about this episode's music, please visit rhino.com
2: or take a trip to your local record retailer. Or listen on your favorite streaming service or buy it on your favorite download place.
3: Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Be good to each other. Take care. Peace and love. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.